The reading today is from Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. In the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of God of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Uh, Good morning, church. Lovely to see you here. And I'm glad that we can still have uh, face-to-face church. You know, um, one good thing about COVID, my wife says I'm an incurable optimist, and she gets a bit cross at me sometimes. But I loved COVID lockdowns. You know, not because of the bad things it did to businesses, but I love the fact that I could watch other preachers. You know, I've been preaching for over 40 years, and I don't get to watch other preachers very often. But during COVID, I could watch lots of preachers, including some that became my favourite. One of them was uh, Bobby Schuller from Garden Grove Presbyterian Church, who has the hour of power. And, and the reason I loved his messages was that I learnt something new just about every time he preached. And uh, he's got a very in-depth knowledge of the, the Jewish background uh, of the Christian faith. So some of the stuff that I'm teaching you today, I actually have stolen from him. I'm just admitting that at the beginning because I learned it from him and when I learn something, I want to use it. Anyway, let's pray together. Father, as we open your word this morning, we just ask for an anointing of your Holy Spirit that our hearts will be excited by your word, that your word will be creative within us, that we'll be blessed by your word and that the name of Jesus will be magnified. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. If we can just have the first slide up. One of the things that I did learn was the significance of the fact that Jesus was a rabbi. You know, and our verse there in Matthew 16 starts off by saying that Jesus came to the region or the area of Caesarea Philippi. He came to that area. And uh, we need to understand what Jesus was doing with his disciples. We're used to the term disciples, but I didn't know as much about discipleship and rabbis as as I did after I listened to one of Bobby Schiller's sermons because he pointed out some very interesting things. Now, whenever I hear something interesting, I've got to check it out for myself because sometimes I listen to preachers and the stuff they say when I check it out, it doesn't check out. But I can say that most of what he taught actually does check out. Jesus, he was a rabbi. And rabbis generally had disciples, they had followers. It was the method in which they taught people, you know, sort of like roving schools. So Jesus had his 12 disciples. Now, have you got any idea of how old those disciples would have been? Yeah, because when we watch movies about Jesus and the disciples, the disciples look reasonably old, don't they? At least in their 20s or 30s. But when rabbis, and don't forget Rabbi Jesus when he began his ministry was only 30 years old and his disciples would have been younger than him. 
Most disciples of rabbis started following their rabbi when they were 13 years old. 13 years old. And when you start to analyse the age of the disciples, and you can work this out a little bit by looking at when they died, and we've got some chronology of that, you discover that probably all of the disciples were under... The oldest was probably Peter. When Jesus called Peter, he was probably about 17 or 18 years old. He was the only one who was married, and they often got married at that age. But think about the fact that these young men were young teenagers. And then Jesus decides to do something with them. It talks about the fact that he came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. And, uh, you know, if we go to the next slide, you've got to ask the question, why was Jesus going to that place? Now, I think this is correct, and this is what I learned from one of Bobby Shuler's sermons. He said at the end of their period of training, the rabbi would take the disciples on a graduation trip. Now, if you can get a map of Israel into your heads, you'll discover that where Jesus came from was almost in the middle. And if you go you know, about 20, 30, 40 kilometres down the bottom, you come to Jerusalem. But if you go 20, 30, 40 kilometres the opposite way, you come to Caesarea Philippi. It's right out in the middle of nowhere. It's somewhere where Jewish people generally would not go. Now, just imagine the situation. Jesus gathers his disciples together and he says, boys, we're going on a graduation trip. This is going to be the climax of my teaching. You know, you've been taught for three years and, uh, and we're going to have this special graduation journey. You can imagine all the mums of these teenage boys would have been excited. And they would have come out of their houses to say goodbye to Jesus as he gathers his disciples with them. And it would have taken them a couple of days to travel those distances. And they put on their backpacks and they take their swags with them and they're off. But instead of going towards Jerusalem, they're going the opposite way. You see, most rabbis took their pupils, their students, their disciples to Jerusalem. That's where you go for your graduation. You take them from Galilee all the way to the temple. You know, you, you make that couple of day journey and, and, and that's the, the, the culmination, that's the graduation that you go through. But Jesus goes the opposite way. Instead of going to Jerusalem, he goes directly the opposite way and he heads to this place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, what sort of place was it? Well, let me tell you, first of all, it was almost like the Disneyland of the Roman world. You'll probably hear some very bad things about it in a moment, but it was like the Disneyland of the Roman world because you know, they had, the Romans had constructed this, this amazing recreation area there. It was like SeaWorld. You know, it had water slides and waterfalls and ponds and swimming areas. It was like a Garden of Eden. It was the most beautiful place. And Romans would often go there to holiday. And you think, okay, Jesus is deciding else there. You know, it was the most evil place in the whole Roman Empire. And you can imagine what these young men thought. They'd come from Galilee. They'd come from the most conservative place in Israel. They would have had a fairly sheltered upbringing. You know, Peter, and here they go to the most evil place in the whole known world 
Caesarea Philippi. Let's look at the next slide. You might say, why was it such an evil place? Well, along with all the ponds and all the waterworks and all the recreation areas was this place. And see the cave there. You see, what they did in this place, and uh, if you're under the age of 18, you might just need to hold your fingers in your ears for a minute. But what they did in this place was absolutely revolting. On that stone platform, they used to have animal sacrifices. They used to have human sacrifices. They had orgies of, of men with goats. Can you imagine that? Totally evil. You can't imagine anything more evil than what went on there. And they did that to entice the god Pan from out of hell, out of the gates of hell, out of the cave. They felt if they could be as evil as possible, then Pan would come forth, spring would burst forth because he was a fertility god and everything would be right, which called panic. Did you know that panic comes from the god Pan? Panic, because Pan was so evil, so dark, so terrible, that it would induce terrible, terrible panic. Now let's go on to the next slide. And we look at the scriptures again. It says in verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, Bobby Schuller, and I'm going to pinch from him again, said something, and I haven't been able to confirm this, but I thought it was really interesting. He said, he said, Jesus takes his disciples to this most evil place. And you can imagine that all the priests of all the various gods that were there, because they had every known god in that flat area, they had niches on the walls with gods. They would have been milling around there. It was an evil place. He says, Jesus took his disciples there, and he stands close to where they were. And in a loud voice, he says, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And Bobby Shuler reckons Jesus would have said that out loud because he wanted to attract the attention of the priests and the others who were there. And they give some answers. They replied, some say John the Baptist. They would have been scared. They were teenagers. They would have been frightened. They would have said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But who do you say I am? <laughs> They're freaking out. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Here comes Jesus and he takes his young church, his young disciples to the heart of evil in the Roman Empire and he declares the fact that he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Let's look at the next passage. Let's look at the next slide. As we go through this passage, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or the gates of Hades, will not prevail against it. You know, there are three different ways in which this passage has been understood. The original Roman Catholic Church used this passage to support the fact that Peter was the first pope. And I think they had a point. Because we know from history that Peter was basically the leader of the early church. And when Jesus says, 
I'm changing your name, Simon, to Peter. I'm changing your name from Simon to Peter and Petros, the rock. And on this rock I will build my church. They basically said Peter is the rock on which the church is built. Peter was the first pope. But we don't all agree that that's exactly what Jesus meant. You know, most scholars that have examined this said, you've got to take notice of the fact that two different forms of the word rock are used here. Petros is a name, but the second word rot, uh, rock is, is, talks about a rock, not about a person. And Jesus basically is probably saying this, you are the rock, you are Peter, you know, I, you, you're going to be strong, you're going to be solid, you're going to be immovable. But on this rock, on this confession that you have made, that I am the son of the living God, that I am the Messiah, I'm going to build my church. That's the other way it's to be understood. That the church was built on the confession that Peter made, that he is the Messiah, that he is the rock. But you know, there's actually a third option. There's actually a third option and this option actually includes the gates of Helena is actually making a statement about the fact that he has brought his disciples and the church to this rock to this flat rock where the evil is and it's on this rock I'm going to build my church it's in the midst of this evil place that I'm going to build my church I'm not going to build my church in a place of religious worship. I want you disciples to understand that my church is going to be built where the evil is the greatest, where the need is the most important. Do you see what we're saying here? Do you see what Jesus is saying here? It makes sense because then he goes to say, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Go back to that number. Go back to slide number three, the gates of hell. That flat rock there, it's still there today. This is a modern picture. He says, on that rock, I will build my church. Right in front of the gates of hell. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know, it makes a lot of sense. I think all three, all three interpretations make some sense. But I think this one makes a lot of sense as well. You see, God doesn't call the church. Jesus doesn't bring his disciples just to the nice, easy places. He didn't probably stop at the place where all the waters were, the place where it was nice. But instead he brings them to the rock, the rock of evil, the centre of evil where I'm going to build my church. I remember a lady by the name of Jackie Pullinger. I remember reading her book uh, many, many years ago. Uh, I forget what it's called, but it's something like, I think it's called Chasing the Dragon. And she went to Hong Kong to start a church and when she went to Hong Kong to start a church she went to the very heart of the drug dealers area she went to where there was the most evil that's where Jackie Pullinger went she, she was listening to Jesus on this rock I will build my church in the midst of evil that's where I'll build my church it was an amazing book to read I read it about 20 years ago and I still remember it to this day another book I read was by Floyd McClung and Floyd McClung, actually one of the leaders of the YWAM movement, actually started a mission in Holland. And guess where he started his mission in Holland? Right in the middle of the red light district. Right in the middle of the red light district. 
See, he listened to Jesus as well. Where should the church be? The church should be where the need is greatest, where the evil is greatest. And I think Jesus was trying to show his disciples something. He was trying to teach his disciples one great lesson when he took them the opposite way to Jerusalem and took them to Caesarea Philippi. He was going to teach them a lesson. He wanted them to know something. He wanted them to know that they did not need to be afraid. That Jesus has the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess and declare that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, it's a passage that uh, I have used quite often. It's from Philippians. And uh, in, in, in Philippians, in Philippians um, chapter 2, I think it is, Philippians chapter 2, we have these beautiful words about Jesus. And it says this about Jesus. It says, Who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess <coughs> excuse me that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father is that true is that really true have a look at Luke chapter 10 Luke chapter 10 where Jesus sends out his disciples and it says there he sends them out two by two it says after this the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him you know the the number 70 or 72 is significant because it's not the 12 it's the 70 it means ordinary christians they come back and in verse 17 we read this the 72 returned with joy and said lord even the demons submit to us in your name and he replied i saw satan fall like lightning from heaven I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Ordinary believers in the name of Jesus were given authority and power over the enemy. What does Jesus say to the disciples? The gates of hell will not prevail against you. The gates of hell, you don't need to be frightened. That horrific God pan that they try to draw out of that cave, out of those gates of hell. He can do nothing to you because you belong to Jesus. You belong to me, Jesus said. And I have the name that is above every name. It's important for us to realize that. I spent about uh, five or six years of my life working with people that, have come, that had come out of satanic ritual abuse. And I'm so glad that after five years... We could move on from that because it's a very, very draining ministry. Because a lot of the time you're dealing with pure evil. And you're dealing with personalities that are satanic in nature. And as a human being, we're not always on top of things. You, you go into a ministry section and, and you might have had a fight with your wife. Something else might have gone on. You know, you might have come and you think, well, I don't feel very spiritual today. And suddenly you're dealing with someone deep into Satanism. You're dealing with evil spirits. You're dealing with stuff that is horrific and terrible. And you think to yourself, what am I going to do? 
But then always that scripture came back to me, always. I have given you authority. It's not my authority, it's the authority of Jesus. And again and again I would say to some of these evil things, Jesus has the name that is above all names and you will bow before Jesus. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, both on heaven, on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So important for us to know that. You know, I've met Christians that get really freaked out when they see evil. And all of us one day may confront evil. It's out there. You, know, you read this stuff about the 72 returning with joy and saying even the, demons, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And we think, wow, they were Old Testament people. They didn't know much. Let me tell you, they knew more about spiritual things and spiritual realities than we do. We're the ignorant ones in our modern society where we think that, that we know it all, but we really know so little about the spiritual dimensions. But Jesus has given you authority. You don't need to be afraid. I've had people come to me and they've, they've been being attacked by demons and I have to teach them and say to them, well, you, you don't need me to deal with that. You can deal with it yourself. If you belong to Jesus, if Jesus is your Lord and Saviour, if you received him as your saviour and you know that on the cross he's died for you and paid for your sins, you have authority. You can speak to that evil. You can tell it to go because Jesus has given you that authority. You know, that's another whole teaching which I won't go into now. Let's just finish up what it says there in, in Matthew. Uh, if we go back to, uh, to number five, if we go back, look at that last verse. What's that about? And look at verse 19, when Jesus says, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What's that all about? It's about the authority that we have over the heavens, over Satan, over evil. He's given us the authority. It's so good to hold on to that truth and to remember that. And then... Jesus goes on to say, don't tell anybody that I'm the Messiah. What's that all about? Yeah, Jesus had just been to Caesarea Philippi and there he is shouting out that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, to all those evil there. And now he's saying to his disciples, but don't tell anybody else. Why? Why? Why did Jesus want to keep it quiet? You know, if you go back to Matthew 16, you go back to Matthew 16 and look at what happens next you'll see why Jesus didn't want them to spread the word because you see what happened as we read began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders chief priests and teachers of the law and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him never Lord that shall never happen to you why didn't Jesus want them to spread the word that he was a Messiah? Because they would have mobbed him. They would have tried to make him an earthly king and they would have tried to stop him from going to the cross. And when you read the Gospels, you realise that Jesus, after this, he set his face towards Jerusalem and he was on the way to the cross and nothing was going to stop him from going to the cross because that was his mission. That's why he'd come. Because on the cross, 
It's our sins were paid for. It was on the cross that death has been defeated. It's on the cross that the enemy, that Satan has been defeated. On the cross, the lamb that was slain won the victory. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, you have the name that is above every name. And at your name, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess on earth and under the earth and above the earth that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, we don't need to be afraid. There is nothing that the hosts of darkness can do to us when we are under your protection because you have all authority and you have all power and there is no name that is higher than yours. So Lord, as we go forth into this world, teach us that nothing should stop us from our mission, from proclaiming the good news of Jesus. doesn't matter how bad a place is or how bad people are or how scary things are. We do not need to be afraid because you have won the victory. Lord, bless this church as it's about its mission. Bless every member of this church, every person in this church. Help them to reflect Jesus and the love of Jesus. Pray that in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.